Welcome to This Week in Hearing and our special series, Giants in Audiology. Hello, I'm Bob Trainer, your host for this episode, and today my guest is the Dr. Robert Sweeto, Professor Emeritus, Department of Otolaryngology, University of California, San Francisco, California, who is best known for his work in hearing, hearing rehabilitation, and tinnitus. Thanks for being with us today, Robert, and uh, we really appreciate your participation in the Giants in Audiology series. Wow. I, you know, I have to tell you, first of all, I'm honored that you would include me in this, but I must say that I was a bit taken aback because when I first got your invitation to be on this series about Giants, I thought we were talking about the San Francisco Giants. And so I got all prepared and I got all my giants geared together and all that. And then a later email come, you said, no, this isn't about the San Francisco giants. Then I thought maybe you were confused thinking that I was a lot taller than I am. But at any rate, whatever it is, I clearly am very honored that you asked me to do this. Thanks, Robert. I, uh, uh, I appreciate that kind of analogy because it's very important to know where we're going with these giants and audiology discussions. Before we get going, though, I'd like to read the, your biographical sketch for the group. So some of those who didn't get the pleasure of listening to some of your great presentations and working with you on projects, uh, I want them to realize who we are actually uh, working with today. Dr. Robert Sweeto is Emeritus Professor and former Director of Audiology at the University of San Francisco in San Francisco, California. He received his PhD from Northwestern University and the MA from the University of Southern California and a bachelor's degree from the University of Iowa. Dr. Sweeto has written 25 book chapters and over 113 scientific articles. He's the reviewer for several journals, the author of Counseling for Hearing Aid Fittings, and I'll interrupt here saying, that was one of one of my best presentations was being chosen to be an author of a chapter in your book. Uh, that was uh, the first presentation really of personal style in the use of hearing and fitting. So, uh, so now we'll continue. As a former member of the board of directors of the American Academy of Audiology, he was the co-developer of the LACE auditory training program, Dr. Sweeto, has been an invited lecturer at more than 300 meetings worldwide and is a highly sought after speaker for his informative and I tend to, to agree, an entertaining style. His research interests include amplification, counseling, rehabilitation, neuroscience, and tinnitus. Dr. Sweeto was the recipient of the prestigious 2008 Distinguished Achievement Award from the American Academy of Audiology. Again, thanks for being with us, Robert. And and where we're going to go with this is to, I think you started off in the city of Chicago. That's true. I was born. I was born in in a, uh, a hospital called Lion Inn Hospital. That nobody believes that name. <laughs> it was it was affiliated with the University of Chicago. I actually looked it up recently because nobody believed that that was the name of a hospital, and it's now it's now gone. 
So uh, any record of me being born, I think, is long gone. So it's not lying around anywhere. Yeah. That's right. That's right. I'm lying around a lot now. So, <laughs> so uh, and and so after lying around in the hospital, uh, then, then you kind of grew up in, a, in another part of Chicago. Yeah, I actually, so I was born in Chicago, and when I was, I think, in third grade or something like that, I moved to a suburb, Skokie, and I was there for, well, really, until I went to college. Dad was kind of a, was a sales guy, and, and Mom, as I understand, you mentioned she was a beautiful, blonde, domestic engineer. Yes, that's right. My dad was a carpet salesman who worked until he was like 95 years old. Just the opposite of me. I retired, you know, in my 60s. He worked into his 90s. Uh, and my mother, and my mother usually didn't work. She worked really hard at, at makeup and stuff like that. And she was absolutely a beauty wherever we went. People thought she was a movie star, wanted her uh, autograph and things like that. All right, but I hear she was a pretty terrible driver as well. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Well, actually, she made um, a, a big article in the Skokie News because she was driving up to the police station to file some papers or something about her license or something, and she managed to bump into a row of police motorcycles <laughs> and it went down like dominoes. All these police motorcycles went down, and so... She made the news. Very well, it's too bad we don't have any pictures of that one. That would be a, a very good one to kind of correlate a lot of this stuff together. Yes, um, yes. So, uh, uh, so high school, you were kind of a football player, I guess, for for a while. Yes, I was actually. I was. That goes to show what a, a bad football team we had. Was there? I was at, at the time about uh, five foot five hundred and thirty five pound running back. And so uh, you you know that our team couldn't be very good if a guy that size was starting as the running back. Well, and but those the, those those low level guys with as they say these days a lower center of gravity can kind of crawl right up underneath some of those guys. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I I I was able to get right underneath everybody's legs, and you know, I I was real fast actually. But I don't know where my lower center of gravity was. If it was. Uh, so somewhere. <laughs> well, so so I understand there were some things maybe that uh, that you had some some friends that were were deaf had some deaf parents and things of that nature that were were kind of uh, some inspiration maybe or maybe not in the moving into audiology. Yeah, you know, one of my closest friends had deaf parents, and um, but honestly, that you know, people ask me that all the time. You know, did that have anything to do with me going into audiology? And the answer is, it really doesn't. It really didn't. Um, I I got into audiology because um, I just you know, fiddling around in college. I really just couldn't decide what I wanted to major in or anything like that. And took a course and actually got an A in it, which was the only A that I got other than in physical education. So <laughs> I thought, oh, maybe I want to stay in this area. And so there it was. Did somebody say something about Dumbo pinnons to you at one time or another. That's what I heard somewhere. Yes, uh, as you could tell from my side view here, I have fairly <laughs> size oracles or pinnas, pinai, I guess. 
And um, I, when I was a kid, my I would ask my older brother, who's five years older than me, I would ask him to drive me to school. And he would say to me, well, why don't you just fly to school? You know, so <laughs> what can I tell well, you? Now, uh, I, I think this is about the time, and, and I was like, not surprised by this at all. I think it's about the time you told me about uh, that that part of high school. You were a carnival barker at one time or another. So, you know, I I haven't had very many jobs in my life recently, uh, real really. Um, but at one point when we were in college, that not in high school, but when when I was in college, uh, a good friend of mine was running a carnival stand in rural Iowa and I went to school at the University of Iowa and so he asked me one summer to work with him and another guy and we had a, a stand at the carnival going from little town to little town and I my job was uh, I was the guy who would call people into our stand and say Ellie, come on over here I'll guess your name I'll guess your weight I'll guess anything you want me to guess about you I know it all and then <laughs> come over we would look at their hands and you know do crazy just crazy things if we if I, if I looked at a say a farmer's hand that had um you know his fingernails were dark from working in the in the land I would look at his hands and I would say ah I know what you do for a living you're a brain surgeon <laughs> so, so it was a really fun gig and it was especially fun because we would walk around to the back of the tent and do a little swig of Jack Daniels and then come back out and guess people's names, weights, and occupations. I see. And and that was probably because you couldn't really work at McDonald's anymore, right? I got fired from McDonald's when I was in Iowa because um, all my friends would come in and none of us had any money. And so they would come in and ask, you know, they'd order a hamburger and fries and a milkshake and I would bring out a package of like 10 hamburgers, 12 milkshakes, eight <laughs> orders of fries and hand it to him and finally my supervisor uh, saw that what I was doing and said bye-bye. That and, and uh, building a lava lamps I think too. That was another great <laughs> job that I had. My high school girlfriend's father was really I. I think he was actually the inventor of lava lamps. And so he had a big factory in, in Chicago. And one summer I needed a job. And so I went to him and I asked if he could give me a job in his factory. And he said, okay, show up on Monday. I showed up on Monday and walked right over to the uh, assembly line, thinking that that was what was going to be my job, working on the assembly line. And instead, the foreman said, oh, no, no, uh, yeah, you're, um, the boss told us where you're supposed to be located. He takes me downstairs into the basement where there's a gigantic furnace. And my job was to shovel garbage into the furnace. This is in the middle of the summer in Chicago. It must have been 130 degrees in that room. So I managed to last uh, like a full day and then I quit, which is another reason why this uh, my girlfriend's father never was too keen on me. Well, that that shows a brilliant individual, uh, I think, that would would quit a job like that. The uh, but now now as as uh, as high school began to to wane, 
I understand that, like many of us, uh, some of us, none of that, some of us just weren't the highest level people at school. But I understand you were the the valedictorian for a certain component of your course of your class. Well, yes, sort of. I was actually in high school the valedictorian of the second half of my class. I think <laughs> I think there was like five hundred kids in my um, in my year. And I was like ranked 251st. Okay. So the the valedictorian of the second half. And then I guess there was some interesting things that led to your matriculation at Iowa. You know, a lot of us would think, oh, Iowa. Uh, Iowa is well known for audiology and speech and hearing and so on. And of course, we would think that that Robert Sweeto went there for all of that fabulous uh, kind of orientation to the world. But I understand there's a different a different way in which you ended up at Iowa. Yes. Uh, first of all, I, my grades weren't good enough for me to get into Illinois, which would, was my first preference. So, and then uh, the Iowa track coach had contacted me. had seen some of my times as a sprinter in high school and talked to me about a scholarship. But then I went to a, I was invited to a party at, uh, in Iowa City by uh, one of my friend's brothers who was part of this fraternity, which is basically, it was basically animal house. <laughs> so I went to this party, fell in love with Iowa and said, that's where I'm going and that's, that's where I wound up. Well, I don't think there's anything better than going to a toga trump uh, to choose the school that you want to go to in some respects. Yeah, so, uh, I think that's right. So with, uh, uh, at the University of Iowa, were did, uh, my understanding is you had some pretty good mentors there uh, that were interact. you were interacting with at Iowa uh, through the undergraduate uh, kind of thing. Yeah, I, I was in, so I didn't move into speech pathology. I think I took in my junior year, I started off in, in pre-dentistry, I remember. And at the time, if you recall, when you went to the dentist, you know, now they put a thing in your mouth that sucks up the saliva in your mouth. At the time, you when you went to the dentist, you were told, okay, turn your head and spit yeah. into that little bowl. And so, <laughs> and so, but I was left hand, I am left handed. And so I figured, well, if I am a dentist, with my left hand, and I tell him to turn around and spit, everybody's going to spit on me. So I was a little concerned about that. Um, so that I honestly, I didn't take, I think my junior year, I took an intro to speech path and audiology. And then you're right, Iowa had some great people there at the time. <clears throat> and I did pretty well in that class. I, I, I think it was, you know, one of my few good grades, and then decided to stay with it. And then didn't really transfer over into audiology from speech pathology until I was going for my PhD at Northwest. Uh, no, I'm sorry. When I was going for my master's at USC, that's when I switched over. So what got you to move to back to California or out to California for the uh, to go to USC rather than staying in Iowa? So First of all, I don't know that I would have gotten into Iowa's grant program. Secondly, I got a scholarship from me. My parents had moved from Chicago out to Los Angeles, so I thought that would you know, be nice to be around them. And I got a scholarship offer from USC, which absolutely shocked me. 
that I actually was getting a scholarship. But then, of course, once I accepted and once I got there, I realized that the reason I got a scholarship from them was I was the only male in a class of like 20 females. So they obviously needed some a token male in there. Wow. So uh, the mentors or things, uh, people that were of interest that, that kind of moved you toward uh, toward audiology at USC? But there was one guy, this guy, Nick Pappas, who had actually gotten his PhD some years earlier at Northwestern. I don't, I, I, I'm not really sure what, what ever happened to Nick. But um, yeah, I was in the speech path program there, and I just didn't like the way they were doing things. I, they, were, they were doing too much child therapy with people who, with kids that I didn't really think needed a psychological approach, you know. And so um, I just decided uh, this isn't for me. And I was actually going to leave the program. And this guy, Nick, said to me, well, why don't you just try audiology and see what you think? And sure enough, I did. And well, I liked it. So, Robert, uh, uh, I understand that uh, you did your Ph.D. at Northwestern. Uh, how did you end up at Northwestern? Was that something Dr. Pappas recommended or was that just something that you heard that it was a good school? Uh, how did you get to Northwestern? Well, uh, yeah, Nick Pappas did say, oh, you're going to go on. Northwestern would be great. And of course, you know, having taken courses in audiology, I knew Northwestern certainly at the time was the mecca of audiology. Thing. If they, everyone with a big name practically was was coming out of there or going in there or, or currently there. So I applied to Northwestern, not at all certain that I would get in, and I went back for it. I remember taking my GREs. You know, remember you had to take those the oh, yeah. exams. And again, I, I was like an idiot in mathematics in high school. I think I got an F in geometry and a D in algebra. So I, I really, math was not my subject. And I remember taking the GREs and when the GREs came back, my scores on them were like in the, you know, 98th percentile in math, and and about the, and about the 90th percentile in the other areas. So I I think Northwestern looked at that and said, "Oh, this guy is really smart," and they came back and did it. And I some years later, I remember having a discussion with Dr. Carhart of all people, and. And I, because I failed during my qualifying exams, I failed on the um, electronics section, the electronics portion, because they asked a question that required a lot of mathematics. And so I said, you know, I couldn't do it. So this old card called me in afterwards and said to me, well, what, what happened there? And I said, to tell you the truth, I'm an idiot in math. And he said, well, how can you be an idiot in math? We're looking at your GRE scores and we see the what you got. And I said to him, you know, I got to be honest with you, Dr. Carr. I think that they must have mixed up my scores with somebody else. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's how I got in with Northwestern, I think. Well, but at the time, Northwestern indeed was Becca. Uh, and not only Carhart, but she had a number of other fabulous mentors there as well. Yeah, Carhart, um, and it was Carhart, Harford, Noel Madkin, Doug Knopsinger, Tom Tillman, uh, Fred Waltman, um, let's see, who am I forget, Peter Dallas. 
I mean, it was an amazing, it was just an amazing array of people there. So yeah, I was really lucky. And, and to this day, I, I still say Carhartt was the greatest professor ever. And understand, you and Carhartt had kind of an encounter at one time. Yes. I, you know, this was, let's see, 19, when did I get my PhD? Around 1976 or something like that. So I was a guy with, I know I, I look grody right now, but I mean, I had a, a longer, grodier, dark beard <laughs> and long brown hair. And at the time, one day I was in the bathroom and I'm standing at the urinal and all of a sudden, guy walks up next to me at the next journal and it's Ray Carhartt and he looks at me and goes why did you shave your beard I had just like shaved my beard like the day before he said why did you shave your beard and I said I don't know I thought you might want me to look cleaner here as a PhD student <laughs> so he actually termed me a deciduous air suit which of course I smiled at and then had to run back to my dictionary to look up to see what it meant and what did it mean? It means, uh, deciduous means it's changing, and hair suit means hair. So it was somebody who, like, changes their their uh, facial hair or their head hair quite a bit. Well, I just didn't want the audience to have to go uh, to the Internet and look that up to find out what that was either. So Yeah, it's a good uh, Well, and uh, the first position was at the... Uh, San Francisco Hearing and Speech Center, from what I gather. Yes. Yeah, I, so right out of Northwestern, I got this job, and I, I had been to San Francisco on vacation once and loved it, and so I got this job offer at, as the director of audiology there, which just, of course, floored me because I was 26 years old or 27 years old at the time, and when I finally got to work there, I was younger than everybody else on the staff. Now I'm put in as the boss, which was a little intimidating, but fortunately I had a really nice group and the staff and they accepted and every once in a while did what I what I asked. Well, as part of that, while you were there, you kind of moved into some adjunct professor uh, positions, San Francisco State and University of San Francisco. Uh, so were were those uh, kind of a lot of us were, that started some of those some of those positions kind of used those to develop our our teaching skills if I remember correctly yeah and actually um, I, I, uh, there was a lady at there were there were two professors at San Francisco State that I remember you might recognize their names Stan Lamb and Diane Berger. and they had done some publications back in their sixties seventies anyway they at different times, they went on sabbatical. And so they called me and they said, hey, would you just cover our courses for those semesters? So I said, yeah, it'd be fun. And um, and yeah, I think that I did develop some uh, of my teaching skills there because it was very relaxed, very loose. I could joke around. I could be myself. So it was uh, th those were kind of fun gigs for sure. And, uh, and then... In the 90s, it looks like, that's when you became the director at uh, the University of Colorado San Francisco Medical Center. University of California. Oh, I'm sorry. I have Colorado on my mind. Oh, uh, nice. 
Uh, yes. Um, yeah, I got that. I was I was working. I was very happy at the Herowitz Center. And one day I got a call from this from the head of uh, otolaryngology there, a guy by the name of Bob Schindler. And um, Schindler just said, I'd like to take you out to lunch. And he offered me the position. And I went out there. I interviewed. I And I interviewed their staff, their uh, otologists and their um laryngologists, everybody in the old laryngology staff to see if I would get along well with the rest of the faculty. And it, it turned out great. And, I, and when I started there, it was a very small program. I kind of followed the years of Elmer Owens and Dick Flowers. So there was like a period after those guys left and before I got there that the, the, that the audiology program really shrunk down a lot. And so when I got there, I had, there were three audiologists on the staff. My, uh, I had a secretary who, um, we had no computers. It was, everything was done by paper. I had a secretary who was wonderful, older lady, um, not, not relative to my age now, but relative to my age then. And she was dyslexic. So she would take down messages for me. I would call them back and there'd be a wrong number. <laughs> so it was it was quite a challenge in the beginning, but then it, it turned out to be great for me. Well, uh, and and during your time there, there were a lot of projects that you took on. Uh, one of them that you and I worked on, uh, I worked on one of your projects was for the uh, for InSound, which became the Phonak Lyric device and. Uh, we were in, and we were working on some clinical trials there. Uh, that had to be kind of a, you know, here's a new device. It goes in the ear and stays there forever. And uh, to to put that in perspective, that was had to be kind of a an interesting project for to be to kind of direct that project. Yeah, it was really fun. I, Bob Schindler, my, my otolaryngology boss. He was actually one of the inventors of that particular project, of that particular product. And so, yeah, we got involved right away. It was really my first experience using a microscope, you know, in from the yeah. department. And I was terrible at it. I remember, you know, how you had to turn the knobs to get the focus. I would turn the knobs and smack myself in the nose <laughs> or get the patient in the head. Um, so it, that was, it was really interesting. And at the time, the uh, InSound, which became the Lyric, was much bigger than it, it, late, it came in later days. So it was interesting trying to get this in and out. And, and one of the big things that I remember that I'm actually really proud of is at first, the FDA wanted only otolaryngologists to be able to... Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And so I had to you know, really do a whole pitch about why if they if they limit this otolaryngologist doing it, the um, access to getting this device is going to be very limited because otolaryngologists, most of them don't want to deal with anything having to do with hearing aids. Right. So, um, yeah, so I, I was really able to pitch that successfully. Particularly then the ENTs weren't, uh, weren't interested in doing much with, with hearing aids. Of course, a lot of that's changed now. But also, that was uh, a time when you began working with the LACE project as well, which is uh, a huge auditory training program these days. Yeah, I, I wish it was even huger because, <laughs> you know, we just, 
Uh, unfortunately, the guy, well, uh, let me step back and say this. So with the LACE program, I w uh, the, this group of guys came to me, and the reason I knew them, this was another part of my professional career, I guess, was at one point I was the audiologist for the Grateful Dead, of all people. Okay, and so... So now you have a very good selection of uh, Jerry Garcia ties. Uh, yeah, well, I did. I still, that you never I, wear. <laughs> I, but I did. I actually did. Um, but so the, this, this group of engineers came to me one day at UCSF, and they said, we're um, working on a project. They, they were like, you know, they're looking for new capital projects to do. And they were, they were working on a project that they heard about a, a tinnitus approach, which basically was phase inversion. And so they came to me and they talked to me about, you know, how did I think that would work? And I said, I'll tell you how I think it would work. It won't work. You know, tinnitus is not a real sound. And so, you know, inverting it is not going to do anything. Um, and so I said, but I, I've been starting to work on something else that I think might be good. And by the way, just to finish that connection. So these guys were engineers for the Grateful Dead. Um, and that's how they knew of me. That's why they think. Okay. Um, and I can go into some other Grateful Dead stories later, probably off camera. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so they, you know, they, so that that's what I pitched to them, the whole idea of lists. Uh, which at the time I didn't even have a name for it, but it was an auditory training program. The name uh, LACE, which was an acronym for Listening and Communication Enhancement, came to me actually one day when I was in the bathroom. I was just sitting there letting my mind wander, and there it came. <laughs> so that's how uh, it is. So, and so these guys said, oh, that sounds interesting. And they were terrific at developing software and you know, doing telecommunications and stuff like that. So if it weren't for them, I, I don't know that the LACE project ever would have gotten off the ground because I definitely didn't have the technical skills to develop it the way they did. Wow. Well, but during your time at, uh, uh, at the University of California, San Francisco, you, you also saw a lot of celebrities from what I understand, and and I know you can't say anything about them, but uh, but that has to be you know I, I know uh, uh, every once in a while I'll be having talks with uh, with other colleagues and they saw famous politicians and they saw this one and that one and all these other people and uh, uh, can you tell us a little about the experience and the and the special kinds of TLC you need to do when you're working with those kinds of individuals. Yeah, I mean, without mentioning names, being out in the Bay Area, I had a lot of the well, very well-known winery owners. Yes. Some of them were really, really nice. Some of them were just so nasty and, and felt like everything was owed to them. One guy, actually, in particular, used to come into my office, pull up in his limo, and then they'd, he'd come into my office with a physician with him at all times. He had a, a physician with him 100% of the time, and he treated this physician horribly. And so one day, um, my patient went to the bathroom, and I started talking to the physician, and I looked at him, and I said, you know, I, I apologize for asking this, but how is it that you put up with the 
behavior that you're um, giving to you. And he just said to me, money. And that was that. <laughs> so, and probably free wine as well. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah and that, was that, that was one tremendous benefit, even from whether it was a nice wine owner or a not so nice wine owner. They all seemed to send wine to my house. They would ask oh, cool. me. Yeah, and so I would go home at the end of, of the day, and there would be a case of wine in front of my house. Wow, so, uh, that was that was always fun. It's always fun. Yeah, and I've and I've heard a couple of things in the the old Bay Area society that there's there's some stories running around about Robert uh, uh, working with patients in in their wine caves and places like that as well. So. Uh, yeah. That has to be an interesting experience as well, also. Yeah, yeah. and then I had a, a couple of uh, very, very famous sports guys, which was, that was the most fun for me, of course. Um, one guy in particular, again, I won't mention his name, but he called, and my and I answered the phone, and he goes, uh, yeah, Dr. Sweeto, this is blah, blah, blah. And I, I thought it was my brother just pulling a fast one on me. And so I said, oh, yeah, sure it is. And then he said, oh, really? And then as I listened, I recognized his voice from hearing him on TV and on the radio. And so uh, seeing him was a real thrill. And I had, you know, some other musicians and stuff like that. So it was always fun. I mean, I would get up in the morning, look at my schedule, and, you know, either be elated about who I was going to see or totally depressed knowing oh, I'm going to have to deal with this guy and it is not going to be fun. The only, the only real advantage on some of these celebrities was when they purchased hearing aids, they were so, um, uh, I don't know, mixed up or whatever you want to say, that they would order like six hearing aids at a time. And I would say, oh, well, you know that there's a, if you lose the hearing aids, they'll be replaced. And they would say, well, not immediately. So they would order like three sets of hearing aids, which of course made university very happy. Of course it did. Yes. Uh, and the, uh, but those, you know, when you look at your schedule in a practice, it doesn't make any difference if they're famous celebrities, politicians, and sports people, or if they're just routine patients, you have the same reaction. Oh, I'm glad to see Margaret this week. Uh, oh, I don't want to see Chuck, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, and then actually a couple of the, the well-known people I saw, I was able to get them to come to AAA for to be a keynote speaker at conventions. Whoa, how cool yes, is that? I know I was there, so I don't, but I don't remember them. So uh... I guess I can mention those names because I knew them primarily for some other reasons. But one year I brought Huey Lewis. Oh, that's right. I remember that one. Yeah. And then one year I brought Amy Tan, the author, to the convention. So, wow. Yeah, so that was a lot of fun, and they both did a great job and they both were you know and you know it's been well known in the uh in the press about huey lewis is really having a lot of trouble and i'm not disclosing yep. he knew it's been all over the press but he's gotten years and it's been a mess for him wow well you know and and i understand during during the previous positions as well as in the the position at uh at uh at the university of california you had a number of grants and some kinds of things that that led into some other projects that that you were you're pretty famous for these days. Well, I, no, thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure yeah, really. These days. 
well, my, 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 my point there, Robert, is I think a lot of the, the grants and the work that you were doing there led into some of the tinnitus research as well as tinnitus kinds of treatment things that all of us uh, uh, have, have known you for, uh, at least I'd say in the last half of your career in particular. Yeah, well, you know, the tinnitus stuff, I, I was interested in tinnitus even when I was going for my PhD. And I remember talking to Dr. Carhart about that. And he said, what do you want to do your dissertation on? And I said, I'd like to do it on something with tinnitus. And he looked at me and he said, oh, would you like to be staying at Northwestern for the next six to eight years? <laughs> I went, no. And he said, um, he said, then that's not the area that you want to try to do a dissertation on. There's too many variables. Of course, he was right. And so, um, but what, what I think really helped me with tinnitus and, and is I wrote one day I was sitting at home and I was reading something about chronic pain and how chronic pain was being treated with cognitive behavioral therapy. And it dawned on me that, you know, tinnitus is so similar to chronic pain in terms of it being subjective and invisible and, and you know, everything and sometimes incurable and things like that. So um, I, I and, and I saw that cognitive behavioral therapy was really helping a lot of these chronic pain patients. And it dawned on me that that would be a logical approach for tinnitus patients. So mm -hmm. I wrote a paper, I think in 1976, it was the first paper that really talked about cognitive behavioral therapy as it might apply to tinnitus. And so, you know, that, that was very useful for me. I got an early grant from um, the ATA, the American Tinnitus Association, which helped me develop um, one of the first tinnitus scales. It was called the tinnitus severity scale. No one ever has used it. <laughs> and it was like of everything I've ever written. Well, there have been a few others, I'm sure. But the statistics on it were, I just didn't have a very good grasp of statistics in those days. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I just, it was, it was kind of a clever scale but it was one that has been replaced by much, much better research, um, uh, handicap inventories and functional index and stuff. PFIs and so on. Yeah. Well, the but you were also a board member and the scientific uh, advisory committee uh, uh, director for the uh, for the ATA as well. Yeah, and it was interesting in those days because if you remember. Those were the days when the primary way of dealing with tenderness patients was masking. Yeah. And I remember when I came out with the whole concept that cognitive behavioral therapy might be the way to go instead of masking, I got a lot of um, pushback from, you know, pioneers in tenderness like Jack Vernon, who said, well, my concern is that if, if cognitive behavioral therapy is the approach, then that's going to move excuse me, that audiologists might be, you know, taken out of the tinnitus picture. And if the funding organizations like NIH believe that tinnitus is more psychological than real, it's going to hurt funding. And so it was, a, you know, he, he had some points there and I had tremendous respect for Jack Burning, but I argued that no, I, you know, I, that I think that really, um, there's room for all kinds of approaches on it because there's no one single approach that's going to work. Well, and and it's the true 
thinkers, it, however the thinking came about, as you mentioned earlier, however that thinking came about, uh, I would say it is a routine procedure for very, very bothersome tinnitus and persistent tinnitus for p p patients to use cognitive behavioral therapy. So, uh, so that's a a innovation, I think that, uh, and 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 I suspect suspect that your paper inspired a lot of that and the thinking that came after that. Um, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I you know, even even today, there's still arguments about you know what's in the audiologist's scope of practice, and you know, is that too psychological for an audiologist? But my my approach was. I mean, cognitive behavioral therapy encompasses a lot of uh, procedures. And I said, no, certain of those procedures are within only the realm of a trained psychologist or psychiatrist. But there's so much common sense involved in cognitive behavioral therapy that that was kind of the approach that I was advocating audiologists can take, even if they weren't cognitive behavioral therapy experts. I, I would you know, I would advocate that they take some training in it, but if they just understand the basics, that should help them with their counseling. Well, now I think there's even some work that's being done uh, with a audiology approach uh, supported by psychology people that uh, will be available in clinics probably the next year or so. So, so quite a beginning for a treatment program that has been fabulously beneficial to many patients. Um, but you were also a, uh, an FDA consultant for hearing tests and ENT uh, devices and things of that nature for quite a while. Yeah, um, I mean, that, that was fun. I, I don't know, you know exactly how much I really contributed to all of that stuff, but, uh, but yeah, I did have, you know, I did have that as a physician and I think because the person I replaced retired, or, or actually, I, I think that it might have gone to work in the hearing aid industry, and so they needed a replacement for that person because they didn't want to have some kind of a conflict of interest. So that's how I was brought in on that. Okay. Well, you know, to to just uh, take a minute, I want to discuss one of your better publications. You tell me this is. You told me this is the best publication you ever did. And it was published in something called How to Eat Like an Audiologist. And if you if you look very closely, you'll see Dr. Sweeto here with his Cheetos and something else to facilitate uh, things. And, and this was quite a quite a quite a heavy publication. You know, the American Academy published that, and uh, and so you were on the front cover along with some other some other colleagues as well. Incredibly fun project. So my contribution, we were all supposed to say, you know, what, how we cook or one of our own recipes. So my recipe was for Sweetos Cheeto Burrito. So our Sweetos Cheetos Burritos, that, that was it. And so the picture has me with my um, sombrero on and a bottle of tequila and my and a bag of Cheetos and, of course, my Sweetos Cheeto treat. Sweetos Cheetos burritos, and so that was really, really a fun project trying to do. Yeah, well, but you know, your your work with the American Academy has uh, is is has been long term, and uh, 
as a an editor at large for Tinnitus Today, uh, as a, a, an assistant editor for the Journal of the Academy, American Academy of Audiology, uh, for since 2005, I think it is. Uh, Brands and Amplification is some another publication. Seminars and Hearing, another one, uh, and uh, lots of various publication kinds of um, uh, appointments that you have taken, done well, and served on a long-term basis. Yeah, I, I mean, I was fortunate, you know, just like you, you know, once you have a some, uh, you know, somewhat of a name in the field, people ask you to do those things. And, and certainly being a journal editor is fun. Most of the time is fun. As we've talked about in the past, sometimes peer reviewing certain articles can be very challenging because some brilliant scientists are not brilliant writers. And so, you know, there's always that confusion in there when you're trying to peer review something. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been, it's really, it was fun for me to be on the board at AAA and to be on these various boards. Um, I just met a bunch of brilliant people and I always had a good time. Well, and part of that good time, I remember sitting in the audience one time, I can't remember the name of the talk, uh, but I sure remember uh, Fabry coming in and putting a cheese head on your head so because you had lost a bet somewhere along the line. Yes. Uh, I, Dave Fabry is a very close friend of mine, and we are, are big rivals in betting things because I'm a 49er fan and he's a Green Bay Packer fan. So one of our early bets was the loser had to wear a cheese head while giving a speech and not telling the audience why they were wearing this cheese head. So I lost that one, gave a talk there with the cheese head on. I've also lost bets to him that cost me a tattoo on my arm um, <laughs> that I, I got. I lost a bet with him that the, the bet was, this was at one of the, the student academy meetings that was at AAA. The loser had to get an, a, a pierced ear during the speech. So I was up there giving the speech, and um, Alan Friend, who's an ENT, yeah, you know Alan. Uh, anyway, he was. This was all arranged. He was sitting in the front row, and in the middle of my speech, he just stood up, walked onto the stage with his little black bag, and took out. <laughs> A needle in thread and bang, they re pierced my ear, and I was pretending like I didn't know what the hell was going on. So he pierced my ear, pulled the thread through, and there I had a little, um, you know, earring in. And then he very quietly turned around, walked off the stage, and sat down. And then afterwards, you know, the students, of course, were shocked. But then afterwards, oh, of course. <laughs> after him to see my new gold stud in my ear. And lo and behold, they had put like a little teddy bear in my ear lobe rather than a quite stud. All the fellas thing out of my ear. With a gold stud. Yeah, uh, and I think that we have some photos to kind of go along with some of these interesting situations in which you found yourself. And and when uh, when in, in your bio where it says entertaining presentation, uh, that seems to be. The, the, that one in the cheese head one seemed to be kind of highlights of, of some of those, although more serious ones have really been informative and and uh, 
clinically uh, very appropriate to the to the times and those kinds of things. But it's always in an entertaining orientation to the world. So, um, I mean, I, you know, I've never thought when I was a kid that I would be a public speaker. I mean, I was, yeah, I'm sure I, I can't remember clearly because it was like 90 years ago. But I remember that, um, you know, speaking, you know, to my class was difficult. And I, my first speaking gig, I got, I remember a guy named Cy Libby, who was- Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And stuff like that. So Cy Libby was a regular speaker at Bob Sandlin's International Hearing Aid Seminar. Mm -hmm. And one day, I get a call from um, Sandlin, and he said, Cy is sick, and he can't come. This was just like a week before the, the seminar. He said he can't come out, and he recommended you as a substitute. And I said, really? I said, fantastic. So that was my first real gig, at, you know, and came about by accident. And at that, you know, I realized I could really go out there and have fun speaking and, you know, try to be as goofy and entertaining as, as possible. Um, because, if, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I never considered myself the intellectual peer of some of the giants in audiology. Yeah. But I knew that I could give an entertaining speech and it was it was always be fun because when I would be um you know at the podium or after after giving a speech with a group of people, you know, I I would say, hey, I'm really honored, you know, and it's intimidating to speak after you because you've got such in perfect data and just so much to to uh, to you know give to the audience, and they would look at me and they would go, "Can you imagine having to speak after you because you had just had the audience <laughs> laughing and you know having a great time?" So, you know, I, I was very very fortunate that you know I was able to be in that position to get out there and have fun and entertain and try to educate at the same time. Well, on one side they'd see the very entertaining kind of a speech, and the other side is lines and data and uh, and and then they'd just eaten usually and then it became the kind of eyes begin to close and so on and uh and so you can tell that that there's a problem by the guy in the back that's snoring uh sometimes in some of those other kinds of talks and uh and of course we've all been on both sides of those talks of course well you know um, i had one i don't remember what the bad joke was i'm sure it was a bad joke and i was giving it a talk in San Francisco, and in the middle of my talk, all of a sudden there's all this commotion in the back of the room, and a guy had had a seizure, and so you know it stopped the talk obviously, and everybody ran over and called nine one one, and and so I in fact the fact that I remember one of the guys called nine one one and was put on hold, which was, but at any rate it turned out that the guy who had the seizure you know was fine, and he actually came to the conference the next day, which I was shocked. But then about a week later, I was giving a talk at a state conference and I used the same joke that, that this guy got the seizure from. I used the same joke and there was somebody, sit, a, a woman sitting in the front row and all of a sudden she started choking and somebody had to run up and do a highlight on her. So oh, I was, I'm never doing that joke again. That was, that was yeah. too lethal. I think that's in our uh, in our best health interest for you to stay away from that one. Yeah. Uh, and and 
you've kind of led me to believe that one of the one of the biggest honors was the uh, the Distinguished Achievement Award from the American Academy of Audiology. Can you tell a little bit about how that how that transpired, Robert? Or? Yeah, um, Jill Paceworm, uh, who was on the board at AAA with me at the time, she nominated me, which I was just you know amazed. And then you know a lot of other people had to write in letters of support for that. And, you know, again, I, I just, I never really looked at myself in, in the same regard as some of the other people who were getting that award. So I was just flabbergasted. And I think a lot of the people who wrote letters of support for me, who were very prominent in the field, were also good friends of mine. So maybe they felt, I can't say something terrible about this guy. But uh, yeah, so it was a tremendous, tremendous honor. I, I think the biggest honor of my life. And although I remember when I went to give the acceptance speech at the at the convention, yeah. at the time, AAA was doing it as a dinner. It was a dinner thing. And while I was giving my speech, which I really worked on to make it fun and, and you know, thanking everybody who was involved, as I was giving my speech, the waiters and waitresses came out and started cleaning dishes and handing out the, the the dinner while I'm speaking. And so there was so much noise that I think nobody actually heard what I had to say. So, Well, uh, hopefully we didn't have to give, we maybe should have given the audience a, a quicksand test or something like that before we started. Um, so, you know, we've, we've both had some experience in international markets and international kinds of things. And, and, uh, and, I know that we've shared some of the same uh, translators like uh, Yeda Russo in Brazil and a few others around the world here and there. Um, what are some of your perils? What are some of your highs and lows of some of those international presentations that, because we've all had them, <laughs> and uh, you said the wrong thing at one time and thought you were saying one thing and you really said something that really was totally gross or totally off the base somehow. Yep. Well, I can remember, I can think of a couple of them right away. <laughs> so some you may want to mention, some you may not want to mention. Well, you know, and some you might want to edit out of here. But uh, <laughs> one, I was in Brazil, and I got up there, and as I was standing there, it was after a break, so the audiovisual guys in the back were, you know, just setting up the sound and, you know, seeing if everything was quite right. And so they... I was at the podium before, just before giving the speech, just as I was about to give the speech, and the audiovisual guy kind of waved to me to see if I was happy with how everything was sounding, and I went, oh, yeah, it's perfect, like this. And there was like a gasp from the audience, and I'm thinking, what's the problem here? I didn't say anything. At the end of the speech, uh, somebody, I said to somebody, I said, why did everybody get so crazy when I went like this? And they said, because this meant this in, the, <laughs> in, our, in our country. So, wow. so I essentially flipped off about a thousand people that were in the audience, <laughs> which I didn't know. Yeah. And then well, I remember yeah. actually another big highlight, not, not that I screwed this one up, but was actually with you in Switzerland. We took a hayride. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, we, and the performer at this dinner was the the fastest piano player in the world. 
his, I forget his name, Nico something or other. I actually got one of his CDs or, yeah. I, I, I have one of those laying around someplace to also. Yeah, yeah, the card was amazing. He was last. Yeah, so that was a bad one. I also used the wrong term, I remember, at a speech in um, either Australia or in England. I used a term that uh, that I just thought was, you know, fairly mild, and apparently it was very <laughs> specific to um, their culture that somebody said, you know what you just said? And I was like, whoops. So. Well, we've all done those. Uh, from that from that trip to Switzerland, I, I I vaguely remember, not vaguely, I actually quite well remember the fact that the president of the company at that time told me, you need to go meet Dr. Sweeto at the station in Zurich. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, that hanging out for a whole day in Zurich with Robert Sweeto, that has to be a pretty good day. And it was a beautiful day in the neighborhood, but it was really a lot of fun. One of my memories from that, and I know neither one of us still have the picture, but taking your picture in front of a place in Zurich, Switzerland, called the Hotel California, which was a pretty big deal at the time. Right, so, right. Uh, well, so now that we've kind of hit a lot of the high spots and low spots and so on, uh, Robert, where do you see the profession going? And how have you seen the development of tinnitus treatment and some of those kinds of, of innovative uh, uh, treatment programs that that have actually kind of, some of them have become pretty routine in audiology clinics. But but the future of the profession, I think, would be a uh, uh, a nice way to begin to wrap up our discussion this morning. You know, I, I was asked a few years ago to give a talk to the incoming students at one, at one of the local universities here. And at first I said, well, let me think about it because at the time I was thinking, I know the future is a little cloudy for audiology because of over-the-counter hearing aids and because of stem cell advances and 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 um, online internet uh, hearing testing and all of that that I think you know create a challenge for audiologists. So, but I sat down and started writing down where audiologists can go, you know, how how they can evolve and things like that. And realize that there that as long as audiologists are willing to evolve, and are not you know like in the mood that well you know hey there there are no more typewriter salesmen but there are computer salespeople right and audiologists have got to be thinking along the same lines that that automation is taking care of a lot of things right now and um, you know, the whole dispensing of hearing aids, the whole advances on air cell growth, things like that, while they create a challenge, there's still gonna be the need for face-to-face -face communication in terms of oral rehabilitation, in terms of tinnitus, definitely. I mean, the counseling just, it's, it's essential. And so then forensics, I think is a tremendous field for audiologists to get involved in. So there are a lot of different interoperative monitoring is another one. I mean, there's just so many things that audiologists can do that are that go beyond diagnostic testing and um, and, and hearing aid fittings. You know, vestibular is another example that you know audiologists really need to branch into something that I never branched into because at the time I don't 
I don't know. I don't even know if audiologists were considering vestibular work back when I was uh, a grad. Well, Rich Gantz probably was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and has turned that into a multi-million dollar worldwide operation, of course. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, Robert, this has been a truly enlightening and truly fun uh, giants in audiology to be the host for. And I want to thank you on behalf of not only uh, the profession, but uh, but many of the kinds of things that we would um, uh, we would all like to see in the in the profession. We would all like to see some more entertaining speeches one day. Maybe when you get tired of walking the dog and uh, various other things that a guy does to relax a little bit when you when you aren't quite as active as you were, a a new entertaining speech would be very nice. So uh, I, again, I just want to thank you for your your fabulous career, your uh, insight and uh, and hilarious talks occasionally that had a point and they had very good uh, academic kind of basis. But we all learned so much from you and your orientation to the profession. Uh, so today, my guest has been uh, Dr. Robert Swedo. Professor Emeritus, Department of Otolaryngology, University of California, San Francisco, and a true giant in audiology. Thanks again for being with us, Robert, and we look forward to maybe hearing another one of those high-level, uh, entertaining presentations. Thanks so much for asking me. I appreciate it.